welcome to season two at Bookish at Bethel. My name is Anne-Marie Koistra. I'm with the History Department, and I am joined by... Carrie Peffley in the Philosophy Department. Today our guest is Dr. Dan Ritchie from the Department of English, and we are going to talk about several of the books that they are reading in Humanities One, including a play by Aeschylus called The Furies or Humanities. Uh, he will also spend a little time talking about Plato, and we even touch on the Pericles funeral oration and other pieces in the Thucydides book. Thanks for joining us. All right, well, Dan Ritchie, thank you for joining us. Um, let us talk, first of all, about how you founded the Humanities Program and what your vision for the program was when you founded that program. Well, uh, Bethel was going through a curriculum review in about the year 2000, 2001, and I was on sabbatical uh, for a semester uh, during that period. And so I realized this, uh, this presented us with, with an opportunity. I'd been at Bethel for 15 years, and I, I taught uh, CWC for seven of those years. Um, and one of the things that uh, I noticed as we went through CWC is that we were going over a lot of material that students would then go over in different ways in the predecessor course to ICA and Christian theology. And we would do some writing, which of course students would do in the composition course. And so I thought the curriculum review process offered us a chance to uh, do some things better, or at least in a different way. But above all, what I wanted uh, to develop was a, a program where students could read full texts, if possible. Because I think um, when you encounter a book in its fullness, or a work of art or a work of music in its fullness, it speaks to you in, in new ways and you become kind of a conversation partner with that author in ways that we as teachers cannot predict. And so that's, that's what we did as we developed the four course humanities program uh, during that curriculum review. And so Dan, you are starting with first year students again. And so uh, how many years have you taught humanities? Well, it began, I think, in 2001. So it's, it's been about 20 years, but uh, I took about three years off. Uh, I took uh, two different groups on England term, and in between I had a year-long sabbatical. So I missed uh, a cohort and a half of students, and I, I, wanted to, I wanted to have one more cohort of humanities students. So I'm back with them. And back in the in the initial version of humanities, there were two different years. So there was one and two, and then three and four that second year. Which team were you on? Were you on the ancient and medieval stuff or the more contemporary? Um, well, I, I ended up teaching them all, but uh, you make a good point. We used to um, separate them um, by freshman team and sophomore team. Mm -hmm. And uh, during another sabbatical, uh, I visited several other programs and uh, it was really St. Olaf, uh, their uh, great conversations program that showed us how valuable it was to have one cohort of professors stay with their students throughout uh, all four courses. So we, we 
picked up that idea, and I think we've seen that it's it's really wonderful. As as you all know, uh, you get to know your students so much better if you stay with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yes, so, and even today, you know, in Humanities 4, we're talking about Dracula, um, which we talked about in a different podcast, but it was delightful because someone brought up Tocqueville and the conversation that we had had in Humanities 3, and it's just nice to have those continuing conversations across semesters. I, I hope that students uh, get to know us in a, in a really deep level as, uh, as professors by, by having us in these four different semesters. They see us having fun on the Shakespeare play, um, and they see us talking about ancient works and modern works, and it's just a matter of, it takes time to develop a relationship. Yeah. So now, Dan, you're starting with the ancient Greeks, and so could you tell our listening audience, um, what are some of the highlights in terms of books that you are hoping to cover as part of the ancient Greek part of the course? Well, um, both cohorts uh, teach Thucydides and Thucydides is great and um, very relevant because uh, there's a great deal about uh, an epidemic and the epidemic uh, tears the nation apart or tears the city state apart. So we're gonna um, read Thucydides with that in mind. But um, as a result of the events of, of the spring uh, with the killing of George Floyd, um, I, I really thought it might be uh, helpful to read Aeschylus's play, The Furies, or as it's usually translated, The Humanities. That's the last of uh, a, a trilogy of plays. And it begins in a cycle of murder and vengeance. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the main character, Orestes, has killed his mother, his mother had killed his father, and they're all seeking revenge, and the Furies are seeking revenge. So there's this outpouring of huge anger, all in the name of justice. And, and every, everybody thinks that he or she knows what justice is, and they're, by golly, they're going to achieve it. Uh, Athena intervenes uh, fairly early in the play and convinces both sides to allow her to establish a process for establishing justice. And they agree to that. That is the origin of the the jury system for Athens and a court of law on the Areopagus, the Hill of Mars. In in my view, uh, the play does not solve the problem of justice and violence and crime and vengeance. But it does, uh, it does take us through a process where we, we see human beings trying to establish as much justice as they can. And I think the play just raises so many questions, offers so many opportunities for discussion, taking, taking anger seriously, but not allowing vengeance. And arson, by the way, is another great crime for the Furies, not allowing those to um, wreck the polis. It's that ability of ancient texts to communicate across centuries that I think we love about these program, about this program. Well, and I think even if students aren't given an answer by reading these ancient texts, I know that it sometimes is comforting to know that they have been keeping company for centuries with people who are asking the same questions and are also in a process of looking for answers. And I think 
even if the answer is elusive, keeping company with others in a time of ambivalence, ambiguity, that lends its own comfort. Absolutely. Keeping company. What's the alternative? The alternative <laughs> would be just to just lecture to each other and to part company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they get to have, I think that's a great reason to read Aeschylus right now for the contemporary conversation, but what a great conversation to have amongst Aeschylus, Plato, and Thucydides as well. I mean, all of them are seeking out this question of what is justice? What does a good civil society look like? What, what are the processes that, that get us to the good, the good life? Um, so you also read Plato, and we don't read Plato. So I don't even know what text you're reading by Plato. So if you could say what you're reading, and then maybe again, just for those who are listening but maybe haven't read Plato, a little, here's what, we, you know, here's what this is about. Well, we're reading The Republic. Uh, so we're, we're reading, uh, there are a few places that we're going to skim, uh, but we're reading the, the whole Republic. And we're reading it partly because uh, Professor Ray Van Aragon likes it. Uh, but uh, the, the way The Republic is, is set up is it's about philosophers keeping company, uh, to use your phrase. It's a model for education. That's one reason we're reading it. It talks about the big questions of philosophy, about epistemology, the way we know, about ethics, um, uh, and, it, and metaphysics, how the world is put together. But just to pick up on the, on the Aeschylus conversation, um, one of the controversial elements of the Republic is that he bans the poets. From his perfect city-state, uh, Plato says, we're not going to let the poets in unless they can tell us how they benefit the community as a whole. That's his standard. And you all read Aristotle. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in the poetics, Aristotle gives a defense of, of why the dramatic poets should be let in. And that is because they offer us uh, a way of refining or purging our, uh, our views of pity and fear. That is what we should truly have compassion for and what we should truly dread and have fear for. And it, it's my view that that's what Aeschylus does. Aeschylus, Aeschylus offers us that kind of thing. So there's a conversation. Uh, I, think, I think Plato makes a valid point. What is art good for? Mm-hmm. Uh, Aristotle doesn't say it's mainly good for self-expression. Nobody believed that until uh, the 19, 19th century. Um, but it's, it's for the good of the community. So then we can talk about, well, how, how is this work of art good for the community? And how about the works of art that you like? How are they good for the, mm-hmm. for the community? Yeah. Although Plato does think that there's one group of artists who can be included in the Republic, and that's the musicians, because it's all about structure and form, and that that's is true. good for the mind, because yes. music is so mathematical. So he, he gives them the stamp of approval. That's, that's true. <laughs> Music's very important to both of these, both Aristotle and, and Plato, and uh, we have much, much to learn uh, from mm-hmm. them. Yeah, and that is an interesting conversation about, especially in a program like Humanities, how, how does art relate to the good life and to the community, and, and to what extent should art um, be, be integrated? And Plato and Aristotle have such different views. I mean, Plato's obviously, his metaphysical view 
on poetry is that the poets essentially tell lies about the gods that um, that take away from the the good of the people. And uh, visual art is an imitation of an imitation of the real thing. And so it removes us farther and farther away from reality, as opposed to Aristotle, who um, says that it has something good to do. Um, I, I, I want to um, just highlight Aristotle for a minute. He talks, he, he gives his defense of um, poetry really in the politics and, and music, the, the end, the last book of the politics on music. And he criticizes Sparta, even though Sparta won the Peloponnesian war, because he says they're great at telling their citizens how to fight. But what really makes a city great is how they use their leisure. That is, what do they do with their time when they're not making money and when they're not fighting? Have they created a good life? And I think our, our students can respond to that. Of course, of course, we want them to be able to make a living, but we also want them to make a life. So, so what, is, what is really worthwhile? And it's the questions raised by uh, Martin Luther and Martin Luther King and, and Calvin and Bonhoeffer. Those are the questions that people come back to uh, in, their, in their lives. How do I reconcile faith and obedience? Um, and so on. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, too, there is a connection back to Thucydides, because even though there is the great section on the plague and the question about how it brings out maybe the worst part of human nature, that's coupled with, it's juxtaposed with Pericles' funeral oration in which he gives his own vision of Athens as a great city. And I think the aesthetics of the city are part of what makes that city great is that they do have beauty in the city. And he might be talking more about the architecture and things like that. But I think too, one of the things that we all hope through humanities is that we do see a place in the good life for beauty. And that might be through the poetry, through the music, but I think that beauty is something to cherish as well. Absolutely. And, and, there are moments I'm, I'm hoping that um, there's some moment in the music, whether it's uh, Bach or it's Duke Ellington, uh, that students say, this, this is worth listening to. Yeah. Um, so in studying Greek culture, we've talked about a lot of ideas already, but if there were one or two ideas that you could have every humanities student take away from walking through some great texts of Greek culture. Do you have any sense of what those one or two key ideas might be? Um, well, one of the other things I, I love about uh, the Republic is the parallels in the later books between um, different kinds of republics and the soul. So um, Plato doesn't have a very high view of democracy because uh, it is it is ruled by appetite and it mm -hmm. enables people democracy enables people to choose uh, ways to satisfy their own appetites uh, well be it's it's for economic well-being and so on but it's not oriented toward uh, toward excellence uh, so much uh, that's the that's the highest form uh, he calls it aristocracy or, or monarchy but the, the other thing that I think is especially relevant today is how democracy can deteriorate into tyranny. Um, and that's, 
when rulers start ruling for themselves, for their private gain, for their private acquisition of power. And that results in the deterioration of the soul, not just of the leaders, but of the people themselves. And that too is something I think we need to, to pay more and more attention to. Maybe so especially in, a, in an election year as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so that's, that's one thing. But one thing I regret uh, that I'd like to hear you all talk about a little bit is that we don't get them, uh, they don't have the chance to learn about the importance of habit, which is such a big theme in Aristotle. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one of your advantages. Yes, thinking about habit as so important in virtue formation is obviously something that, you know, Aristotle takes his teacher's theory um, and, you know, really in an ideal world, we would teach Plato's Republic and Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics and Politics all in a package because I think they really do um, go go well together. And I think what Aristotle does is uh, by focusing on habit um, is to point out that we learn to be good like we learn and acquire any other skill and we have to practice and we have to practice over and over again in order to do that and that our community is so important in doing that so Aristotle I also like because he really highlights the importance of the family and of friendship Um, and I think those connections are incredibly important in in virtue formation go ahead Andrew Oh, so those also show up then when we get to Dante, because I think, too, maybe it's a little bit less alarming to see somebody going, I need to work at getting rid of getting rid of my vice. And it shows up again with Thomas Aquinas, sort of this idea about, like, you can aspire to be a good person, but you are actually going to have to work at it. And forming, ha- I mean, forming habits is very difficult. Right. Forming habits. You know, uh, <laughs> I've just been noticing uh, one of the things we talk about in Humanities One is the importance of creeds. And, and creeds get developed in the fourth century. And uh, th- there are all kinds of, of signs, at least in my neighborhood, that have a, a series of creeds on them now. Uh, and, and, and one of the uh, creedal statements, of course, Black Lives Matter and, and so mm-hmm. on, but love is love. Is, is one of the creedal statements. And I know the political implications of that, but Dante didn't believe that. Uh, Dante believed you had to actually work at love, that there were certain habits that you might feel are loving, but by golly, they aren't. They are destructive of what true love is. And so as, as he walks with Virgil up purgatory, uh, he is learning to refine his desires huge theme in Dante and of course Augustine and with regard to habits uh, habits and community habits in the family that takes us right into Tocqueville as well mm-hmm. yeah and I was actually as you were talking about Dante I always I always think about Dante as sort of a, a beautiful combination of Aristotle and Augustine with this sort of virtue theory but viewed through this Augustinian lens of sin is just sort of a misdirected good Um, and it's love but love of the wrong thing or distracted love or misguided love and and purgatory is about redirecting those habits re you know acquiring the virtue that you failed to acquire beforehand absolutely 
This sounds like a great course. I think everyone should take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, in our next curriculum review, we can uh, we can refashion it, get Sam and uh, others to help us mm -hmm. out. And say it gives a big two thumbs up. I know we just talked a little bit before we started recording um, about teaching during a pandemic, and you said that you know, you didn't have a whole lot to say about that yet, but I think for people who are listening, it's, they're probably a little curious about how we are managing at Bethel to try to teach face-to-face -face and what impact that has had on us at all. Maybe it hasn't had any impact on you, but how you do your teaching in the world of a pandemic. Um, well, I'm not sure I have a whole lot uh, more to say than, than anyone else, but uh, I think we've been really fortunate at Bethel that our um, ITS people and our facilities management people have arranged the rooms. Um, but in my humanities class, I have 26 students, and the, the one at the back of the class is way too far away. Um, this is a face-to-face class and so it's it's going to be a real challenge to develop those relationships mm -hmm. and especially with students on zoom on the other hand um it zoom can bring more students into the um conversation uh that that are less likely to speak up in class so i think we're all going to uh, discover that one of the things that i've noticed during the first week of class is how glad we are to be together. Um, glad students are glad to be with folks they've known and incoming students glad to be starting out. I think that's significant in itself. Um, it, education is a, is a together thing. It's, it's about relationships and it's not just about delivering content in whatever technological way you can. So. Yeah, well, and I would say, I don't want to get overly dramatic, but I, I do think at an institution like Bethel, which is a Christian institution, with its emphasis on the body, and you can take that as the body of Christ, but also the body of Christ as the community, I think there is a way that it is really important to us. And I think for me, teaching in the midst of a pandemic at Bethel, I think what I miss the most is that I am supposed to be staying put in the front of the room at my station. Mm -hmm. And I'm used to going around and interacting with the students as they are talking in smaller groups. And I am missing even as much as I'm grateful, as you say, to be with them in person, I, I still feel like I want even more community than I have. I don't know, Kara, I, I would love to hear from you. Yeah, I actually, I like Zoom for some of the reasons that that have been mentioned that I think it does give students students who are quieter in bigger groups it gives them an opportunity to speak up um, in ways that that they wouldn't otherwise and it also I think gives me the opportunity to you know in breakout rooms or whatever to walk around um, so I've actually found I, I taught a class this morning that was entirely zoom um, because that particular class, I've got half of the students are online all the time and half of the students are in person. So we're doing a little bit of, of hybrid. And it was fantastic to see everybody's faces and to have, it, it wasn't a stunted conversation. Everyone was on the same page. 
Um, and that's, I think it's having conversations is, is so essential to the way I teach um, that it's hard when I'm turning a camera around to try to connect two different groups of people who aren't physically together. It's a, definitely a challenge. I think one of the things that uh, we're, we're seeing now is there are more students diagnosed with COVID, how much we are depending on each other to, um, to follow the rules, right? Um, to, um, to wear the masks and so on in ways that uh, we hadn't appreciated before. One person's actions really have a big effect. Mm-hmm. Now, Dan and I have a class in uh, not too long, and so I want to make sure that we ask Dan our signature question, which is, Dan, what is on your nightstand? What are you reading for fun? Oh, boy. Uh, (laughs) What am I reading for fun? I'm really having the most fun at reading Anna Karenina. I thought, okay, we're in the midst of a long pandemic. Let's read a long Russian novel. <laughs> and uh, I've really loved it. It's so, so different from it's anything we're talking about. Tolstoy is magnificent at creating these set pieces. There's one where Levin is, is uh, reaping the, the harvest with, uh, with the peasants that are on his estate. And, um, when Anna falls in love with Vronsky at the at the ball, it's just absolutely ravishing. And then the the tensions, the tensions that arise between her and Vronsky, just beautiful, beautiful set pieces. Um, Anna Karenina. Fantastic. Well, Carrie, what what's on your nightstand? Well, so similar to to Dan, I and our listeners will know. When the pandemic started, I was in Ireland and I had taken a James Joyce Ulysses tour of Dublin. And when I came back, got inspired to like, again, for the same reason, oh, it's a huge, huge book. This seems like an ideal moment. So I've been working my way through that. That I have to do in smaller chunks. So I haven't quite finished it yet. Um, And then uh, I am also reading um, for something entirely different. a book by, oh no, and I'm blanking on the author. It's called Hiking with Nietzsche. Um, And it's this philosophy professor who kind of walks through the Alps um, and reflects on Nietzsche's philosophy, but also on his connection to Emerson and the romantics um, and and nature and the outdoors. It's it's beautiful and and quite lovely to read. What about you, Anne-Marie? I am reading a book by one of my favorite authors over this last year, Gail Godwin, and the book is called Flora. And I think I find Gail Godwin intriguing because her world seems so different from mine, because a lot of the stories involve a younger female protagonist who usually has a much older father figure and is sort of intelligent but also kind of remote and um it's this you know so I, I have just started the book but i enjoy the relationships that she writes about and i appreciate that she writes these books that are um slower reads in some ways so you, it's not just a page turner so i enjoy that i will mention for dan's benefit that i had a student come by this summer 
And I had recommended a couple of years ago that he read some Flannery O'Connor because he was like, what should I read after graduation? What, what are some good books? And I said, oh, you've got to read some Flannery O'Connor. Well, he came by to deliver another book I had you know, given him, but then he had come with him, uh, he'd taken with him a novel by Flannery O'Connor. And he's like, oh, Professor Koistra, you were so right about Flannery O'Connor. And I loved her so much that I basically read everything else by her. And if you haven't read this novel, I would like to give you a book. And of course we had, but I just thought you, Dan, would really appreciate that because I yes. know you're a big Flannery O'Connor fan. Yeah. So. That's fantastic. Well, Dan, thank you for joining us. I hope that your uh, Humanities One semester is fantastic. And for listeners, you've been listening to Bookish at Bethel. Bethel.